warning to our listeners, this week's episode uh, does contain potentially uh, triggering topics, including suicide, sexual abuse and childhood trauma. If these topics are upsetting to you, then we completely understand that you might want to skip this episode or skip forward when we reach the content. Uh, welcome to Screaming on the Inside with me, Celeste. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, today, I'll be speaking with the wonderful David, who has taken some time out of his day to share his recovery experience with us. Hi, David. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. You're Hi. Welcome. It's lovely to have you. Um, so, yeah, do you want to start off with just telling us a, a little bit about yourself and your recovery? Um, well, I'm going to start um, about... It was just over three years ago, um, I got the opportunity to go to Oasis in Moncombe. Um, I'd had a period of sobriety before, but um, I was clean, but I was clean of substances. I wasn't, I wasn't acting or behaving clean. Um, and I got all the, the side things, the job, the girlfriend, new baby, um, doing all these wonderful things, managing England, um, homeless football team around the world. and um, But inside I was kind of dying still. Um, and I had a bit of a mental health breakdown. Um, and we'll, we'll get on to that in a bit. But with mental health, yeah. you know, like it's always the, oh, it's because you're an addict. Um, so I got the opportunity. Um, I got some funding to go to Oasis for six months. Um, and... It kind of changed changed my life. Um, not kind of, massively changed my life, but it, it gave me the footing. Um, and now three years later, I'm able to sit and have a conversation with you. Yeah, well, congratulations. I mean, three years, it's, um, it's, quite, it's quite a milestone. Um, so congratulations on, on three years. That's, um, that is absolutely uh, amazing. And, um, you know, perhaps you'd like to tell me a little bit more about the uh, mental health side of things and, and how you feel that that impacted your addiction. I will talk yeah. a little, like you say, we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, later. But um, what, what was sort of the tipping point for you I when think, things get unmanageable? I think to get to, to get to a tipping point in anything in life, there has to be a beginning. And I think for me, it's important to speak about the beginning and, and the early the early years, because I, I believe, um, that especially for my mental health, but for the more that I, I speak to people with, with bipolar, with EUPD, it, it stems from childhood trauma. Um, I was was born in, in 1978 in Glasgow, and um, I was born in an environment that um, you would associate with Belfast, more often than I speak about Belfast, because I've just came back from there, um, which is something else I, I'll go on to talk about. But um, I'm, I'm a Protestant. Um, my dad was a Catholic. My mum was a Protestant. Um, and so that was a kind of no-no. And their relationship was quite turbulent as well. And they were both really young. And um, I was put in the care system at a very, very early age. Um, and... That had a massive, massive effect. Like, I'm, I'm now 44, but I've lived in 155 different properties in my life. Wow. By the age of 12, I'd lived in 72, give or take, different properties. 
Um, I had various different surnames um, because I was moved from foster carer to foster carer to foster carer. Mm -hmm. um, and with my mental health, I believe it started um, at the age of six, I was put in my foster carers um, and these were going to be potential adoptive parents. And I was in there a few days and it was really, really good. Um, uh, and I remember and I remember it vividly and, and it fueled a lot of my hatred and anger for a lot, a lot of years was um, going brilliant. And then my foster mum found a ranger's top in my belongings. And six hours later, I was in my social work office looking for new foster carers. Gosh. Because I was a ranger supporter and I was a Protestant and they were a Catholic family and it shouldn't have been and I shouldn't have been placed there. Um and they were they were led to believe that I was neither. Um, now whether whether rightly or wrongly that the social work should have told them that should not matter. Um as a child, I was a six years old child, and and it's taken me to get to walk the steps and to get specialist help to to realise that I was a child, and and that was the kind of the downfall. And um, when I was growing up, I was quite sectarian, and, and it's quite obvious to see why. Mm. Um, and then I was placed in a temporary foster carer. Um, that was my first experience of addiction. Um, my foster brother, who was about 14, 15 years older than me, died of a heroin overdose in the next bedroom. Um, and at the time, um, the social work and my foster carer wanted me to stay there still. Um, but while he was being buried and everything else was going on, the upstairs neighbour, who was about 14 or 15, was asked to kind of look after me. Um, I speak about this because it's not something that men speak about, um, especially men in recovery. We've got this, and men with mental health, we've got this bravado that these things only happen to women or that, um, or that it's only women that are strong enough to speak about it. And, and he's, he sexually abused me over a four-week period in a garden shed. Um, yeah. And it's and it, it still... Like, I still get that dirty feeling sometimes when I speak about it and, the, and the, the emotion that comes with it. And there's times that because of my mental health condition, like, I see that happening 24-7 sometimes. Like, yeah. I could be sitting having a conversation like this and I can see see visions. And I used to try and run away and hide from it. And that's how drugs in, a, in later life became a part because it covered that up. Yeah. Um, and then, so what that, that led to was um, my first mental health condition or addiction, whatever you, you want to describe it, as some people describe it as either or, was bulimia. Well, I was quite I was quite chunky as a, as a child, and what I would do is, um, especially, that never came until I was about 12, until I was in a children's home, and you got, like, the old school children's homes in Glasgow where like, these old big 
Victorian mansions with 24 kids in them, mm. like um, million pound houses, like um, you had like materialistic things, anything you wanted you got, there was a kitchen cupboard full of chocolate, you could just go and help yourself and what I would do is I would go and I'd hoard loads of chocolate and I'd make myself sick and I'd wait till late at night and then I'd go and like, purge and make myself sick. And it gave me a release um, that I only ever found in ecstasy and cocaine in, in future life. That it gave me that release, and, and for half an hour of the day, I liked myself. Mm, I yeah. felt free. Um, I felt a freedom that nothing had ever given me, um, and I also didn't feel fat useless, hopeless foster boy that everybody else would call me at school and um, and it's just, it's weird when you speak about it and um, it's only been diagnosed later in life but I knew for a very, very early age what it was and like at the time there was, there was an Australian an Australian soap, well-known soap that highlighted this problem um, way back in the 90s and um and that's how I knew what it was. Um, and people, like, even now people say, but, but you're, you're a big lad. How can you have bulimia? And I'm like, because it's, because people assume that it's only people with anorexia or likewise that have got, like, eating disorders. Like, I know lots of people in recovery that have got eating disorders that you just wouldn't even think. And they, and, there's even a common misconception in that because I work a 12-step programme and I firmly believe in the 12 steps. However, I also believe that the 12 steps aren't the answer for everything. Um, I need outside help. I need outside support. I am very, very passionate about men in particular, speaking about eating disorders, speaking about being sexually and physically abused because if we do it, then the next generation coming through will be able to do it. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's um, incredibly brave, actually, of you to talk about such um, personal things. And I'm um, very, very sort of grateful for you um, being so honest about it, because you're right, you know, uh, men particularly don't really feel that they can talk about things like that and, and be vulnerable. Um, and I think there'll be a lot of people listening to you today that will, you know, feel a bit less alone. Yeah. Because you've shared that. And um, I, I just think it's incredibly brave. So thank you so much. And um, I think there's a lot there. I, th I think um, I, I really relate to the um, childhood trauma and uh, being in an environment that was just not supportive um, yeah. or nurturing you know, um, emotionally um, nurturing and, and being rejected at an early age and, you know, not being able to have a childhood, you know, like like normal children do. And, and I think that it's, I think a lot of people in addiction came into addiction because of that self-soothing. Yeah. Um, you know, like you said, you put it perfectly, you know, when you 
you know, started with the bulimia, but then, you know, drugs and alcohol, or, you know, it, it made you feel good and that you liked yourself and that you yeah. weren't, you became a different person. And I, uh, I certainly relate to that. I, I come from a very chaotic background. I am, have trauma and abuse and uh, addiction in, in my childhood. And um, from a very young age, I, I quickly learned that if I wanted to feel good and feel better, then drinking drugs was the, the right way to go. Yeah. Um, and you know we're, we're talking about mental health today because um 30th of march is world bipolar day yeah. and uh, it happens every year and bipolar uk this year are urging uh, members of the public across the uk to use social media to help share information uh, about the disorder and to uh, get the events hashtags trending uh, it's hashtag world bipolar day and hashtag let's talk bipolar we'll be putting those up on our own social media and encouraging conversations around mental health generally um, but bipolar being such um, it's a common factor we see in addiction um, yeah. It's a bit of the chicken in the egg situation. Um, you know, are you more likely to become an addict if you have bipolar or can bipolar be a precursor to addiction? Um, nobody really has the answer to that. And I don't think there is one simple answer. I think there's so many factors involved. But, you know, I think a lot of people like you, you've already um, said in your own experience, you know, if you're suffering from a mental health issue like bipolar disorder, drugs and alcohol can become a very effective way to soothe those symptoms, yeah. actually, um, and, and um, can therefore make it, you know, make it worse over time and it is a serious mental illness it affects over one million people in the UK alone um, broadly speaking it's described as a, a mood disorder uh, it's characterized by often unpredictable mood swings uh, between yeah. um, depression and mania I'm sure you relate to that Right. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. Um, you can tell me a little bit more about it um, in a moment, but um, I don't know about you, but I started to realise that my mood was never normal. It was never in the middle. It was always high yeah. or low. Yeah. Right. But never, never somewhere never. in the middle. Right. Um, and, um, you know, so the characterization between depression and mania those episodes is one of the main sort of characteristics but it is a lot more complex than that yeah. um you know like yourself and and certainly um myself as a bipolar sufferer my life became significantly disrupted as a result of um of my bipolar and the addiction um as a, as a result of that as well um so studies have found that uh, many uh, individuals with bipolar uh, disorder will develop an alcohol um, or drug addiction of some kind. Um, up to 43% of people with bipolar have some sort of alcohol or drug use disorder at any given time, which is it's a really, that's a lot of people. Um, and the people with bipolar disorder who have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder actually have a 60% chance of developing a drinking or drug problem at some point in their lives, wow. which is a big, big number. Um, and, and I think, you know, as we've been sort of discussing, people who suffer from bipolar disorder often feel a little quite out of control, or out of touch with their lives and unsure how to deal with the, the symptoms and the episodes that, that, that occur with the disorder. So therefore, 
drink and drugs becomes an appealing option. Drugs and alcohol can help relieve the negative symptoms of bipolar disorder temporarily, as we know, but over time it can cause um, an increase, a worsening of the disorder over time. Uh, the higher the high, the lower the low. Um, yeah. pretty much and um, yet when we're in our addiction it somehow feels worth it um, so would you like to tell me a little bit more about um, about your bipolar and, yeah. and perhaps you know a little bit more about what that looks like while you're in your addiction so one of the one of the telltale signs and one and the elephant in the room I suppose and um, what what doesn't get spoke about especially and when we are trying to address it within like drug and alcohol treatment services and stuff is for me the elephant in the room is gambling. And and I think that bipolar that that is probably how I knew like that I had bipolar. Um and, and it wasn't just like an addiction issue. Um because my like even now in recovery like my spending habits are just ridiculous. Um, I will go through periods where I can keep money in the bank for ages um, and then I will go through a period where I will just spend, spend, spend. Like I've got like um, 102 pairs of trainers, 40, <laughs> 40, 44 of them are in boxes still. Wow. Um, and, it, and it's like, and people say, oh, that's just, your, that's not, that's because when I'm in that, whether I'm, especially in a manic period when, when everything feels like top of the world and brilliant, I'll go and buy three, four pairs of trainers a day sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and even, like, people just associate, we say, well, what about when you're in a low period so you won't gamble then? And it's like, non, because my head will tell me, well, if you go and do that, you'll get that, your endorphins will be raised, you'll be all right, you'll get back to that manic stage. And it and it and it does me. When I try and explain that, and people say, "Oh, that sounds like you're just an addict." No, I'm telling you, I'm not because there's a lot there, mm. a lot process behind the whole thing. It's not a case of I'm uncontrollable. I can't stay at a betting shop, or I can't stay at a, um, JD Sports. It's like I'm my unlogical brain tells me logically that this is going to make my mental health better. Yeah, and, and then you've just hit on something really important there, is that when, when you do have bipolar, your brain will essentially lie to you. Yeah. It, it's, it's very, it, it's the, it's the uh, another thing, uh, something that happened to me is that when, I, I'm better now, but certainly when my bipolar was less well controlled, um, it would tell me that I didn't need my medication anymore. Bingo. Right. Yeah, I'm, st I'm still like that now. Yeah, but you have to be aware of that. And, and this is why bipolar is so dangerous, because it literally tells you things that are not true. But it's your brain telling you that. So you have no way of being able to sit on the outside and yeah. go, don't, don't listen to what your brain is telling you. Because your brain is... You, I'm confusing myself right now just by talking oh. about it. It is completely... It is, you literally cannot trust the one thing that makes you it, you, right? It's the most logically unlogical illness. <laughs> it's, it is. It's, it's a bit um, uh, mind-bending. And, and, and I'm really, really interested in, in the gambling um, and the excessive spending. I, I, you know, I'm in recovery now and, and my bipolar disorder is 
pretty stable, right? But my spending habits are appalling and they are linked directly to my mood. Yours is trainers, mine's books. Yeah. I have got so many books. I haven't read about 80% of them. Yeah, <laughs> I just can't stop. But it 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 is a compulsion. It feels like a compulsion. I, 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 and it is a compulsion, and so then people then link it directly to addiction and don't yeah. under, and don't understand it. And I think the the biggest thing for me is is like so I was originally diagnosed with EUPD. Um. And then I had like a suicide attempt, which I'll come on to last yeah. April last year. Um, and I was then diagnosed with still having a UPD, but having bipolar type two also. And like I was talking to my university lecturer because she's got EUPD, and she was like, "It sounds very, it's very rare for somebody to be diagnosed with." With both, and I'm like, mm. it's not, it's not as real as you actually think. But also, the problem is, is because we spend too much time, sort of pigeonholing people and sort of saying that you're this and you're that. And actually, yeah, as you get to know the person and listen to the person, the problem we've got, in my opinion, with mental health services is that you get a one-hour assessment mm. of a one individual. Mm. Um. Like when I when I got a uh, oasis and because um, I've also got PTSD as well and so actually a counsellor in oasis that actually says to me that you got PTSD he says hundred percent I guarantee you when you go and get checked he says I can't diagnose it but I'm just telling you that's what I think it is yeah um, and and lo and behold of it that that process of of getting a valid diagnosis and also having someone see you as more than just a diagnosis and seeing yeah. you as the whole person i mean I, I know from my own experience and from my own research that getting a bipolar diagnosis can take around 10 years yeah. and it's the same with any mental health diagnosis and um i think you're quite right i think obviously ment- our, our, our mental health professionals all do uh, you know they do a wonderful job but i think um I, I feel quite similarly to you that you might see 10 different people and you'd probably get 10 different diagnoses yeah. right um and that can be extremely frustrating and and difficult for someone who just wants answers who's going through a really rough time that, that you know their mental health is declining they want someone to give them some help and answers and get them in the right direction and for me i think and I don't know what you feel about this, but, and, and again, it's, it sort of comes from an, the AA side of things. My diagnosis doesn't really matter as much as it does being able to manage my symptoms and live a meaningful life. Yeah. Where I came from and what caused it is less important to me now than understanding who I am, having tools to manage the difficulties we have Um, and having a holistic approach how can I make my life more manageable how can I look after myself overall to make my mental health as good as possible yeah and I'm not minimizing the fact that you know bipolar is it is a serious you know I have to take pretty hardcore meds yeah to manage my mental health I would not be 
functioning as well as I am now without them. However, having a, a wider lifestyle changes, I think that's yeah. what I'm trying to get around to. Um, and, you know, for me, I think I realise now how I ever thought I could ever get on top of my mental health disorder while in active addiction was beyond me. I honestly thought that the drinking and the drugging and the other behaviours that I had learned over the years to self-soothe, I actually thought that they had nothing to do with my declining mental health. Yeah. I wonder if you've had a similar experience. Um, Did you, um, were you in denial about your, your, your drug use, uh, alcohol use? So I... Like, I I was unconventional to an extent and that um, my addiction with the drugs and alcohol didn't really start until I was um, 21. Um, yeah. and, it, and it came so quick. So like I was searching my whole life to be, to be loved and to have a family. And um, I never had that, a proper family. And, and then one day, not long before my twenty first birthday, I got a phone call from my dad. I never didn't know was still alive, didn't know anything. Wow. So I went from having no dad um in my life, mm. no family, no brothers, no sisters, anything, to having a dad, a stepmom, a brother, a sister within sixty minute phone call. Literally that was it. Wow. I then at the time, I was fairly settled. I'd had the usual sort of teenage drinking, um, like drinking on a Friday, Saturday night with, with the gang and everything else, but nothing in me. Six months, so I gave up my flat, my job, moved to a different city, moved in with my dad, uh, my stepmom, my brother and my sister. Six months later, I was homeless, addicted to ecstasy, um, on an, in and out of hostels um, and had no relationship with my family. In six months? In six months. Wow, that is, that's um, a really quick decline, isn't it? What, why do you think things got so bad so quickly for you? Um, because I went from um, this kid who wanted this family, um, but being pretty, like, a spoiled child to an extent, um, and then kind of having everything that I ever wanted and not being able to handle that and not being able to handle the rules of your family um, I had a, a sister who had been with the older sibling for such a long time and then I got this little brother who looks up more to me than he did to her and, and that created animosity and then um I always felt that I wasn't a part of that family because essentially I wasn't. I was just like an I was just like an add-on. Must be it must have been extremely difficult. Must have almost put you in a, back into a childhood state as an adult. You know, like yeah. almost reliving all of that and having to reintegrate into a family that you essentially don't know. You didn't even know you had. I mean, that must have really brought up a lot for you. Um, and it's it's really no wonder that you know you ended up in in trouble, you know, emotionally. Yeah. Um, because of that, 
um, six months. That's a, it's a, that's a really quick decline. I mean, um, I went from being a heavy drinker and occasional drug user, and I've been um, ticking along fairly, you know, okay, I guess, for, for many years. And um, I had a life event and then and cocaine got involved and I, I was on my knees within three months. Yeah. You know, and um, I wonder how, I, I always say that I'm actually quite grateful in a way that it happened that way because had I not been on my knees and completely desperate, I don't know that I would have found the rooms. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that, on, on that sort of concept of rock bottom and, um, you know, that turning point? Are you in any way grateful for that? I am, great, I am grateful that, um, that obviously I found the rock bottom, but like my... So my rock bottom, so I, I got, as I said before, I got a period of stability, two and a half years clean, on a 12-step day, day rehab for three weeks. Um, so things were, um, so everything looked great. Um, I got a job as a senior support worker in a hostel. Um, I, run, I run a project in Newcastle for um, people in recovery, like a football project. I got um, a role managing the England homeless team at the Homeless World Cup in Amsterdam, Glasgow and Oslo. Um, so on the surface, everything was great. Yeah. But um, after about a year, I said, I stopped going to meetings because life took over, life was too busy. I had a little girl. Um, I got in a relationship with... Um, Somebody who is now one of my best friends, but if we're both honest, it probably wasn't the right relationship for either of us. Mm. Um, and my mental health then declined massively. Um, I'd done a step four and the abuse stuff came out um, and it was the first I'd ever spoken about it. And my answer was, I'm going to start socially drinking on a Friday night. Um, and then I found cocaine, and again it was like six, six to eight months turnaround. Boom! I was on, on long term sick through work. I was using cocaine seven days a week, um, and that was my rock bottom. Um, and the, the biggest, the hardest thing in that was um, my little girl was only three at the time, and she came in the kitchen. Well, I was sniffing a line of cocaine. And that was like the defining moment for me. And it was like, I need to go. And then I went, I went to Oasis and, and it, it was a saving grace. And, but it was also one of the hardest things because when I left Oasis, I had an option to go back to Newcastle to my partner and my little girl or did I go to Liverpool, where I knew a lot of people in recovery, where I knew that recovery was really, really strong, especially to our step recovery. And do I essentially start again? And, and that's what I've done. And I've seen there's, there's days now that really kill me um, because my little girl is now six and 
like I get her every holidays, I see her all the time, I speak to her five or six times a day on but I'm missing moments. I'm missing that first tooth, being able to put the money under the pillow. Um I'm missing that I missed that first day at school, like being the person to take her there. Um but I get I get to see it all, but it's just it's part of the all you see it all, you don't necessarily feel part of it all. Yeah. And that, and then, but then that leads in to the mental health side because that, because for me, bipolar, UPD, whatever it is you've got, we all just want to feel part of. Yeah. Any recovering addict, any addict wants to feel part of. Like a lot of my addictive ad- addiction and the things I had done in addiction was because I wanted to be accepted by that group of people. Absolutely. And then when I came to Liverpool, it was like I was friends with everybody in the rooms, and now I've got a circle of five people. Mm. Um, got a really, really small circle in the rooms, and it's because I choose that circle to be small because yes. of my, I've been burned so many times. Um, but I also because I'm so open. And I'm so honest. Um, I'm an open book. And like if somebody asks me about something, I will tell them. And it's like, when, I, when I've when i been reading my step, walk up with my sponsor and I talk about things and it's like, at 24, like, I've lived in all these different foster carers, children's homes. I was sexually abused. I was physically abused. I was mentally abused. At 24, I got diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. I found, I went to bed on... Christmas Eve 2003, after a night at partying, woke up eight hours later with a lump the size of a golf ball, have a phobia dentist, thought it was an abscess, never went near a doctor, got pointed out that I had to go to a doctor. Seven days later, I'm in hospital getting chemotherapy and radiotherapy. My granddad dies of the same illness, Christmas Day 2004, exactly a year after I'd found my lump. When I tell people this, they're like, F off, that can't be true. <laughs> right. That, it's like, no way that happened. When I, I've been offered a publishing deal, like to write to write my life story, and I've just not got time to, to write it. But when, when I talk about it, I'm like, Are people actually going to believe this stuff? And that's when I know that that's my, and often when that happens, that's when my bipolar kicks in and I go on these de- the depression stages is because it's like I know all this stuff happened. Yeah. This yeah. stuff did happen to me. It did. It did. And and that, that's part of the healing process though, isn't it? Working your way yeah. through things. Um I, I really I really, really relate to that. When I tell my friends or people that I've met about because I'm like you and I'm an open book. I have no shame about my past. It's made me who I am. Um but when I when I do tell people about what I've been through as a child, about my dad's um, drinking and, and um, uh, my, my family life and things, they sort of look at me as if to say, what are you going, you know, they're, they're more traumatised than I am. 
yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, but I think it's really important to be open about these things and to accept that we as as humans, as people in recovery, you know, we we can work through our traumas, but I think we'll always keep a little bit of that with us. And it's just important to, to know what those triggers are and to know. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 you know, I hope you're the same as me, but having had, you know, lived with bipolar now for many years, I can see that the warning signs. And because I'm sober and because I've got a head on my shoulders and I, I um, you know, I'm looking after myself the best I can, rather than finding myself in a depressed, in a depressive episode or a hypermanic episode and thinking, oh, here I am. What do I do to fix the problem? It's like crisis management. Now I can catch the early signs and largely avoid really 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 big swings yeah you know um but you know we all just have to sort of live with it the best we can and um i think um i also really like what you say about uh, acceptance and wanting to be accepted i think when we break it down that is one of the biggest reasons any of us do anything especially as um young people trying to find our ways you know all we want to be is accepted right um and you know taking drugs and 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 drinking alcohol if that helps us feel accepted you know that's just going to reinforce us doing it again and again right um even if you know over time it's making us more and more um poorly um and if I may, I, I feel like your the, the relationship with your daughter, um, you know, that, that must be really difficult not being able to be there for all of the, 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 the small things. But the fact is, is that because you're in recovery, you can be a dad yeah. to her, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you, you never would have had that opportunity no, um, def- with, def- without, getting, without getting sober. Yeah, definitely not. And... and- like anybody that knows me and uh, like I don't so I done a main share obviously for me my three year clean time and, mm. and one of the things that was the common sort of feedback of for people was like they love looking on my social media and seeing me and my little girl because it, mm. I spoke about with, with me with my dad and, and family. I was always looking for love, I was always looking for acceptance and and I've got that in abundance with that little girl. And, yeah. and I've never known what love is really until until my little girl came along. And that, that, that is a love that and a connection that will never be broken for anybody. That's it. Uh, That's a connection. No one can take that away from yeah. you, right? Um, um, and someone as someone who, who lost my dad to addiction, to alcoholism nine years ago. Um, I'd give anything to have that relationship with him back. You know, the one thing I always um, feel most sad about is that he, I I found the rooms and I found recovery, but he never did. And that was just the path that his life took. But I would rather have a dad that I saw every now and then, but, we're still around, you know, than not have one at all. And, and I think that um, anyone who gets well and then has a, a relationship with their children because of that, I, I think that's just so beautiful. 
really yeah. do. <laughs> How often do you see her then? So I get I get her every single on the holidays. Every single school holidays, and I try and go up to Newcastle once a month. Um, wow. Obviously, I see her every single day on FaceTime and stuff. Oh, you FaceTime every day. I, oh, that's I, so sweet. Well, literally, she'll ring me at quarter past seven every single morning. <laughs> and then she rings me after school and then she rings me before bed. Oh, that, that makes me feel so, so happy that you have yeah. that relationship with her. And I think, yeah, um, to be able to have that. And, and um, it's, it's really a testament, isn't it, to, to if, if we find ourselves... Um, desperate enough and at rock bottom, how how life can be turned around. Massively. Um, yeah. I just think, like, one of the things that, because um, I know I spoke quite a lot about 12-step recovery and stuff, and mm-hmm. one of the things I think quite important is um, I'm on the UCAT alumni group, um, and there's a lot of my friends on there, and he often posts and he's three years clear and he's flying and he's wrote a book and he's done a lot of really good things. And he's one of the people that always kind of talks about like um, oh, 12 steps, they think they know everything and everything else. And I always say to him, it's like, when we go at a conversation by saying, well, these 12 steppers make me feel uncomfortable by, then we, and likewise, if, if somebody who works a 12-step program says, well, we'll use that don't don't know what you're talking about, then we are actually doing what we're against because we are actually trying to influence mm. people. For me, recovery is about you. It's about what you get. Uh, whether that be a 12-step program, whether that be smart recovery, whether it be you linking in with other people who have had similar experiences yeah. is unique to us as individuals. And I think it's it's massively important. And I also think it's like, you spoke about it earlier, we look or we seem to be seeking for labels yeah. when we get into recovery. Well, it's me mental health, I want a diagnosis, I want this. And, and my, he's actually just tried to rig me, but my old, the, the manager of, Oasis when I was in there is actually now my boss because um, I work part-time in a different rehab because I'm at university as well and he always used to say to me we're seeking labels um, and I've had a conversation with him now about it and he, he says I always knew what you had but what we had to do was to get you through the addiction and get you to work through that and then you can look at other things and I think it's important because when we get into recovery we seek to label ourselves as well. Yeah. I'm a 12-step recovering addict. I'm a smart recovery recovering addict. Why are you not just a recovering addict? Yeah. And I think that that for me is massively important. I've got friends in the 12 steps who will be saying, what are you saying that for? And I'm like, because it's what I believe. Yeah. I believe that recovery is such a personal journey that it doesn't matter what it takes for that to work for us, because that that's what it is. And it's also like, I've got a diagnosis of mental health, I've got a diagnosis of bipolar, I've got PTSD, great, I know what it is. But that, just like you said earlier, that does not define me. That label is just something that I know, okay, they know what it is, yeah. I can work through that now. 
Yeah, you're, at, you're so right. Um, you took the words right out of my mouth. Your diagnoses, our diagnoses, whether it be as uh, mental health sufferers, uh, addicts, recovering addicts, whatever those labels might be, they do not define who we are. Yeah. You know, uh, they might answer some questions, but yeah. they don't define who we are. And they shouldn't define our journeys either. And, and, and I cannot agree with you enough. And I always say on this podcast that, yes, we might have a discussion around 12-step program, but, and it might be something that's used in, in our centres, okay? Yeah. And it is a beautiful, wonderful program. And anyone who is struggling, never, ever rule it out as an option for you, right? It has saved lives. It, you know, I'm a 12-stepper and I'm here for it. However, there are, like you say, there is no right or wrong way. The only thing we have to do is learn to manage life on life's terms and not pick up a drink or a drug yeah. or enact the, the, the behavior like gambling or, you know, excessive spending, whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, we are, we, you know, especially on the alumni team, um, who, who, you know, which I'm a part of and I speak to, um, clients all the time every day and I think I love hearing about all the different things that people do to keep themselves well um and you know it isn't always AA or, or smart you know it can be um, lots of weird and wonderful things and um yeah do do what you need to do you know if it works for you then who are we to say that you know it can't it can't be part of it, your recovery exactly but I think just to sort of summarize that it is mm. We have a responsibility mm. as people in recovery not to close any path off for anybody. Yeah. yeah. What we what we say, what we carry, the message that we carry, mm. the the words that we put out there, we have to be really, really careful. Yeah. Because we don't want to influence somebody else's path in a negative way. Um and I and I feel that that's Something that uh, that I, I just personally am really passionate about is because we have to allow people to make those individual decisions and choices. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it can be... Um, that's a really interesting point, actually. I, when, when, you know, if... I suppose I can only go by, you know, what I would do. I mean, if I, if I, if I had a friend who came to me and said... I'm, I'm in dire straits, I'm desperate, I want to stop drinking, and I need to do it today. I'm not going to lie to you. The first thing I would say is get yourself to a meeting and take yeah. it from there. However, once that person has got themselves in a position where they're able to then make, you know, yeah. uh, good life choices and, and think about how they then want to move forward in a long term, then absolutely, yeah. you know. Um, and that, but that's, that's kind of what I mean, is it? Yeah. Like, it's when we're in, so when we get to six months a year clean, we've been going yeah. and then we decide that meetings are not for us. Yeah. Putting out a message that uh, it's like a cult or it's like this and it's like that, mm. that's not helping the next generation. No, it's not. That's using your negative experience to impact somebody else. Yeah. Um, and also, the other side of the coin going to meetings, getting this great spiritual experience and saying that's the only way. No, it's not. It's no, the it's only not. way that worked for you. It's the only way that's worked for me, but it does not mean it's 
the only way it's going to work for Joe Blog is just coming out of treatment. Yeah, works both ways, doesn't it? It really yeah. does. And I think, I think um, it is about being open-minded and having respect um, yeah. and compassion for other people in recovery. And um, like you say, you know, I'm a 12-stepper. I will yeah. always want to share the message yeah. of, of AA. However, I don't have an agenda. Yeah. yeah? And, and, and I think that you will always have people that do have an agenda and uh, just be wary of that, you know. Yeah. And um, I, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really glad you brought that up, actually, because um, it is something I always like to touch on. Um, I know that a lot of our alumni uh, are keen to learn more about sort of non-12-step recovery options. Um, got a uh, got a blog coming out actually alongside this podcast, um, which will be linked in the show notes, and it is actually looking at alternative methods yeah. um, of recovery, different things that you can incorporate into your recovery that you might not be aware of. And and you know, it's again what we say is take what you want and leave the rest. And I really really don't think there's any right or wrong way no um uh, march the 20th was international day of happiness and we have been asking our alumni uh, what makes them happy um before i do that david what what makes you happy these days um fitness sport um you need so when for example um when i left oasis i was 22 stone 10 um so just under 23 stone yeah um i was involved in football and stuff and um there was a picture taken of me and it was horrendous i dyed blonde hair i was like i just looked absolutely awful in this picture <laughs> and uh, um and it gave me a kick up the backside and um i got a period during the first lockdown where i had a, a suicide attempt um and a couple of people that I knew, um, an ex-world champion boxer um, called Derry, I'm going to name, name check him, Derry Matthews, mm. um, got me in his gym and, and started giving me some PT sessions. Um, and I'm literally, not even a year later, I am 16 stone three as of this morning. I've done a white collar boxing fight um, at the end of last year, I'm fighting next Saturday. Um, I'm at university doing health, nutrition, and physical fitness. Um, I have just came back from Belfast um, on Wednesday, having taken 16 lads facing chronic social exclusion Um to play in um, an 11 side football tournament on Monday, which they won, and an 8-a-side tournament on Tuesday, which they also won. Um, and so basically, yeah, I've basically... Um, oh, and also, I've just became a qualified PT. Wow. Um, You've got a lot going on there, David. I yeah. really, I'm honestly, genuinely impressed. And well done on your um, sort of weight loss and um, you know fitness journey. Um, it must feel so good. Do you it, feel better it, for it? It's brilliant. I feel a hundred times better than um, yeah. the the biggest buzz here is like I'm now 
training people in early recovery and stuff um, who have come to me and, and asked because they've seen my journey in terms of the fitness and stuff. And yeah, um, yeah it's, it's good. And, and it combats it combats the bulimia massively. Yes, yeah, we, we only really sort of touched on that a little bit, didn't we? But I, yeah. I, I'm guessing that, and, and eating eating disorders isn't um, the thing I know the most about, but it must be something much like the bipolar disorder and, and the addiction is just something that you're always going to have to learn yeah. to sort of manage. Yeah. Um, so um, I guess having a sort of a holistically... Um, sort of healthy approach to things keeps keeps that helps yeah. keep that at bay yeah 100 percent. that's fantastic and the boxing yeah so you got a fight next weekend next, next so what do you have to do to prepare for a fight um eat properly um plenty of running um i'm so i was in this morning and i done an hour um with a personal trainer um yeah. who kind of took me through some bag work and then various different exercises. Awesome. Um, I think I burnt about 850 calories in about 55 minutes or something. So it's, oh, wow. it's hard work. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can imagine. It, it's also about eating the right stuff afterwards as well. Yeah. So, it, um, so no, it's good. It's really, really good. Amazing. It, it just sounds like you've got such a... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not satisfying. Um, I've got, I've got, I've got a zest for life. Zest, yeah. Sounds like you've just got, you know, a passion. You yeah. found things that you're, you're, you're passionate about, and you're, and you're putting yourself into that. And yeah. um, I, uh, I think recovery gives us that. I think that, um, and, and you know, certainly when I was in my my addiction and my mental health was really poor, there was nothing left of me to 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 put into anything, any passions, hobbies. You know, I wasn't interested in in doing things that were good for me. I, I certainly didn't have space for that. And um, like yourself, in in my recovery, I've started to really re. Um, sort of reconnect with the things that I used to like to do um yeah. so like I, I I was always um a musician when I was younger and I'm in a band again now playing bass uh badly but you know I'm doing it um and it's just um yeah doing you know I'm exercising more and just spending time doing the little things that bring me joy and that's what International Day of Happiness is all about it's just taking a day out to reconnect with the things and remind yeah. ourselves of the things simple big it doesn't matter what they are that that sort of make us happy and um as i said our, our lovely alumni have um, sent us in a couple of responses about what makes them happy we've got uh one one alumni says uh, my grandchildren uh walks with my beautiful i think it's a, a way marana which is a a doggo called Storm, uh, family, supportive friends, and, and last but no least, my newfound positive attitude, which is really nice. Yeah. I've also got someone saying uh, my sobriety by working my 12-step program. Well done. And also uh, being totally sober since leaving rehab. Um, and these are all, you know, great things to feel happy about. Um, 
So I would encourage everyone out there, um, just take a step away from everything today and just um, try and take a minute to think about, you know, what really makes you happy. Um, it's the gratitude, isn't it? And we all yeah. do it. You know, we're all told to do it as part of our recovery. And uh, I don't know about you, but when I, when I first started recovery, I would write my gratitude down, yeah. I'd write a list. And it was a, a daily thing. Now, I'm just naturally wired to find gratitude in things. Yeah. I don't need to write it down. I'm not saying you shouldn't write it down. You know, if that's part of your daily routine, then great. You know, keep that journal. But yeah. for me, is my whole my whole uh, worldview has switched from finding automatically finding the most negative thing in a situation to finding a positive. I wonder if you, if you do you have a similar experience now? You just yeah, good. pretty much comes natural. Yeah. It, it, it just comes natural for me. It's kind of, you be grateful because because it's there for you. Yeah. You see it and what you do on a daily basis. You see the opportunities that you get. Thing. You're amazing. And I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of this, David. Oh, I really hope so. I can't thank you enough. It was an absolute... Pleasure speaking with David today. We wish him all the best um, in his future recovery journey and for the boxing match. Um, and we'll keep you posted of any updates. You've been listening to Screaming on the Inside with me, Celeste. Um, I just wanted to take a minute before saying goodbye um, to touch on something that my, my sponsor said to me the other day, which has really stuck with me. Um, there's a lot going on in the world right now, and uh, you know, I won't go into details. You, you, you all know um, what's happening in the world, and uh, it's it's been difficult for everybody um, uh, for different reasons. And I phoned my sponsor the other day in dire straits, and uh, just feeling a little bit overwhelmed by everything. And uh, she said to me, she said accept that we cannot be responsible for what happens in the world but we ourselves can be the good we want to see and that's really really stuck with me you know we can't change the world um, and it's difficult to watch but we uh, we can share kindness and compassion and be just good people um, to those around us and, and share a little bit of, uh, of goodness and if that's all we can do then that's okay. Okay, everyone, take care out there. And remember, if you need support in your recovery, you can find a load of information and contact points for us at UCAT, that's ukat.co.uk. You can also call us directly uh, on 0203-949-6585 uh, for the alumni team if you would like to talk. I'm going to leave some information in our show notes for you to have a look at. Uh, there will be a link to our resource page, our Facebook group. If you're not already a member, feel free to sign up. And a link to my blog on um, recovery methods um, that you can learn a little bit more uh, about AA alternatives. Thank you so much, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. We'll look forward to seeing you soon.